Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Luke chapter 19. And uh, follow as I read just the first 10 verses of uh, Luke chapter 19. You got it? Here we go. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, that that endures forever. Back on January the 27th, I, um, I posed a question for us to consider here as a, as a part of this community known as, as Gracie Van. The, the question that I posed that I want to continue to answer today, the question was this. Is it possible to be both affluent and faithful to God at the same time? And if so, what would that look like? Again, the, the question that I'm, I'm seeking to address is, is this. Is it possible to be both wealthy, to be affluent, and faithful to God at the same time? And if so, what would that look like? You know, one of the subjects that Jesus <clears throat> discusses probably more than any other subject, any other one subject in the entire Bible, is the subject of, of wealth and affluence and money. And, and most of what he said when it comes to that subject was, um, was pretty negative. 
he um, was constantly warning his disciples against the, the, the soul-numbing tendencies that, that money and affluence had on the soul. And, and he confronted, and when he confronted rich people, he, um, he often did so in the bluntest of terms. One New Testament scholar who, who I really, I really like this guy, his name is uh, Thomas Schmidt. He said this, every time Jesus offers an opinion about riches, it's negative. Every time he teaches about the use of wealth, he counsels his disciples to give it away. Now, I'm not sure I agree with all that. And uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But it, at least his comment does, it, it helps me frame the subject. Gang, the Gospel of Luke is, is unique for a lot of reasons. For instance, uh, Luke is the only Gentile that writes a gospel. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and John are all Jews. Luke is the only Gentile that wrote a, a, um, a gospel that got included in the, in the four. But his gospel is unique for other reasons. It is, it, it contains, that is the gospel of Luke contains, um, what, what I would call a more integrated view of wealth. Than, than any of the other Gospels. And to prove that, let me just point this out, which I think is extraordinarily interesting. Luke's Gospel is the only one of the four that contains these stories. Zacchaeus. It's not found anyplace else. Luke is the one that tells you that. Um, Luke is the only Gospel that contains the parable of the rich fool. You remember the, the story about the man who, who because of his agricultural success... He had gotten so much, and so he had to tear down barns and build new barns. And then today, you fool, your soul is required of you. That's, that's only contained in, in, in the Gospel of Luke. And then the, the parable of the dishonest manager, which we're going to look at a little bit later. Um, you know, he's the one that uh, his, his boss found out that he was misusing the funds, the company funds, and that's, all, that, that's in Luke. And then the other one that is unique to Luke, that is the other, one of the four, is the, um, the, the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the rich man and Lazarus and Lazarus, they both die and the rich man goes to hell and Lazarus goes to hell. Remember? Now, now isn't that intriguing that those four stories all about the subject of wealth are only found in the Gospel of Luke? Not only that, um, what I found also to be interesting is that Luke is the only one that attaches the story of Zacchaeus with the parable right under it, right next to it, the parable of the ten minus. Now that, that parable is found elsewhere, but nobody attaches it to the story of Zacchaeus except Luke. Now gang, it's all of those stories, uh, those and, and, and numerous others, plus some Old Testament stuff and and then some stuff that we get from Paul. You need all of that. You need to put all of that together if we're ever to come up with some kind of full-orbed view of what the New Testament has to say about wealth and affluence and money. But I'm not trying to address this. I'm I'm really not trying to give you 
a full-orbed, fully integrated view of the subject. I'm simply trying to address this. Is it possible to be both wealthy, affluent, and faithful to God at the same time? And if so, what would that look like? So I've chosen this story about Zacchaeus and, and, and with this caveat. Not everything that needs to be said can, can be said in, in two sermons. But I, I do hope that as a result of January the 27th and this one, in fact, if you didn't or here on the 27th, get that one and put it together with this one. <clears throat> um, I, I hope that, that it, it at least that those two sermons will open a door for us for some 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 discussion about creative stewardship. I hope at least that what I'm saying, what I said then and, and, and this morning, will open a door so that we can begin to think through the whole subject again and to think through it with, with some biblical directives. I, I am convinced that this, I chose it, uh, this story of Zacchaeus, because I think... It has a most important message for this congregation. Maybe not for every congregation around the world. Maybe for the congregations in Honduras or uh, Hungary. But for this congregation, I, I think it has a most important message. So, let's take a look. Up to this point, up to chapter 19... In the Gospel of Luke, in in every encounter uh, that Jesus has had with with uh, we'll just call them wealthy people, Jesus had directed them to leave everything behind and come and follow him. Luke chapter five, when he meets Peter, um, and they go out and get this big catch of fish, and uh, and we're told that they left everything behind and and went out and. Follow Jesus. In chapter 12, in that discussion uh, where Jesus is talking about anxiety and, and being so, um, so anxious about your life, um, he says in verse 33, sell all your possessions and give them to the needy. Then in chapter 18, we come to that famous parable of the rich young ruler. You remember the, the, the guy that comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, do this, do this, and this. And he wants to say, I've already done all that. And so then he says, well, okay, then one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. Up to this point, chapter 19, the emphasis upon with, with Jesus when he's met wealthy people is sell it all and come follow me. Then we come to this story, Zacchaeus who is described in verse 2 this way. It's kind of funny almost. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax. This is not just a tax collector. This is the tax collector's tax collector. He's the chief of tax collectors. He had tax collectors working for him. He was the chief tax collector. And he was rich. The Greek word that is translated rich there is is one that describes 
you know, he was really rich. Now, the contrast between how Jesus deals with Zacchaeus and what he's done in the first 18 chapters couldn't be more stark. The rich young ruler, for instance, in chapter 18, was a model citizen. He was a rich young ruler. He was a, he was a model citizen. Zacchaeus is a scoundrel. Zacchaeus is Jewish. And uh, he sold his soul for a mess of pottage. He sold his soul so that he could, uh, he could be wealthy and affluent, have money. And he, of course, gained that money wrongfully. He did it by collaborating with, with Rome. He was considered a traitor to Judaism. He was the scum of the earth in the, in the eyes of most Jews. We're told in this story, in verse 3, that Zacchaeus had this interest in seeing Jesus. Where that interest came from, it doesn't tell us. It just, he wanted to see him. He wanted to see who Jesus was. So because he was a short fellow, um, he found himself a tree, climbed up in the tree because he knew that that was the path that Jesus was about to take. So he goes in and plants himself in a tree. And um, But Luke, in the telling of the story, makes it very clear in verse 5. Um, that when Jesus came to the place, Jesus looked up and Jesus said to him, Jesus is the one that in, that picks him out of the crowd and says, um, come on down, um, I, I want to uh, spend the day with you. Now, gang, the, 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 the contrast between Christ's response to the rich young ruler in chapter 18 and the Z- Zacchaeus is stunning. The difference between the two. The difference in the way that he responded to the rich young ruler and, the, and, and how he responded to Zacchaeus is, 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 it's intriguing to this, this corrupt, scoundrel, tax collecting official, Zacchaeus. Jesus does not say one word of condemnation, nor does he demand anything from him. Instead, he simply invites himself over for supper. And that response, we're told in verse 7, angers the crowd. They grumble against Jesus because Jesus is now going to have a meal with somebody who's a sinner. But Jesus seems to be completely unfazed by their criticism and, and goes home with Zacchaeus anyway. But once he's there, once he's inside Zacchaeus' house, you will notice, I hope, that it is Zacchaeus that initiates the conversation. And he begins, that is, Zacchaeus begins by expressing unsolicited shame for what he had been doing. Because he knows very well that he has, he has sinned by uh, impoverishing and oppressing God's people. Unlike the rich young ruler, there is no trace of self-justification on the part of Zacchaeus. But only, all you see in him is this heartfelt desire to make things right. And so he offers to repay anyone that he has defrauded four times what he has taken from them. And then he goes on to add, I, uh, I will give half of my possessions away to the poor. 
Now notice, Jesus does not make the demand for Zacchaeus to leave everything, as he did in the rich young ruler. He does not make that demand, and Zacchaeus doesn't offer. In fact, up to this point, Jesus hadn't said anything. Zacchaeus simply, or not simply, but he very profoundly commits himself to live honorably, to live justly, and to restore uh, all of these unrighteous gains of his. He, he commits himself to Jesus to make things right. Jesus doesn't say a word. He just listens. Again, apparently, Zacchaeus is drawing from an Old Testament principle that's found in Exodus 22. And that principle requires that if you stole something from somebody, you had to return it twofold. If you stole 100 bucks, you had to return 200 bucks. But it, again, it only stipulated twice the amount. Zacchaeus commits himself to four times the amount. It's important. We're going to come back to that. Finally, Jesus speaks. And ladies and gentlemen, in a blockbuster statement, he says in verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Jesus accepts this this sincere desire on the part of Zacchaeus to live honorably. And I want you to note that he identifies it. Jesus identifies what Zacchaeus has said as a conversion experience. Today, salvation has come into this house. Also, it appears that Zacchaeus remains a tax collector. Because the text never mentions anything about uh, Zacchaeus ever leaving. Interestingly, when John the Baptist, in chapter 3, was dealing with tax collectors, the tax collectors were, were coming out to be baptized by John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says to um, the tax collectors, um, tax collectors also came to be baptized and he said to them, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. John the Baptist does not call the tax collectors to abandon their business, but to perform it in such a way that they are constrained by righteous principles. John the Baptist does not ask them to leave that profession. Neither does Jesus. Now, guys, if a chief tax collector working in the social economy of Herod and Caesar can be a son of Abraham, then I think there's hope for us. For, for affluent people in all walks of life, um, there, there's hope for us too. Because in this story, 
Um, it, it is not that this man is saved from the economics of the world, but he is saved that the world might be benefited through his salvation and the new economics that accompany his conversion. Now, Zacchaeus can be a powerful influence for good in the entire region over which he was the overseer. In, uh, um, he, he is going to use his economic influence to bring about good. Now, gang, what I'm suggesting is that I said this has a, a, a very wonderful message for this congregation. I want to suggest that this is a model. That Luke is putting forth a model for affluent people, for all wealthy Christians, most of whom, that is most of us, <laughs> who do not engage in occupations anything like as corrupt as the, the tax system of Zacchaeus' day. Zacchaeus is a model not to imitate in a, in a literal and a slavish kind of way, but he is a model to, to emulate in terms of his disposition and the principles that he displayed. Like Zacchaeus, we have to find creative ways to shape the institutions in which we find ourselves. Our families, our churches, our schools, the banks, the corporations, the businesses, and, and, and on a larger political scale, we have to find creative ways to influence, to use the economic position that we're in as an instrument of redemptive power. At least we can seek to become some kind of agent of good on the inside of these institutions and then use the wealth that God has given us as a tool of redemption. That seems to be what is happening here as Jesus deals with Zacchaeus. The way into the kingdom for Zacchaeus was not through poverty. Or it wasn't even through selling his home or, or changing jobs. Salvation is on display in this story through creative uses of economic power. And those creative uses, I want you to note, transcended biblical minimums. Now, gang, all of this might catch you a little off guard, and, and some of you might think I'm trying to coax this idea out of this story. So because of that, um, uh, I want to show you that this is not isolated in one place. I want to show it to you in a couple of other places. You can stay in chapter 19, but go back a couple of chapters to 16. The parable of the dishonest manager. The gang, let me say up front, this is a very troubling parable. But there are a couple of similarities to the story about Zacchaeus that I thought would be helpful to us in making the point that I'm trying to make. Here's a similarity. 
like Zacchaeus, the main character of this parable, chapter 16, verse 1, is a disreputable man. Look. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And so you remember what the guy does. He says, oh my goodness, I'm, I don't know any profession. I'm too lazy to dig ditches. And so he begins to call in all the accounts and he says, oh, you owe my master a hundred uh, bucks, uh, make it 25 and, and we'll cancel the whole thing. That's what this story is about. Folks, um, it, it, it also, I think, has to do, I think that, I think the message of this story has to do with the converting of the dark, oppressive powers of the world system. Notice, notice what he calls it in verse, in verse nine. Um, make friends by unrighteous wealth. This story has to do with the converting of unrighteous wealth into a power of good and redemption. The bad Becomes good, in other words, based on how it was used. Folks, this parable is notoriously difficult to interpret for several reasons. Not the least of which is that Jesus seems to approve of this guy's dishonesty and his shrewd behavior in verse 8. By the way, there is, there is a way to, um, to explain all that, but we don't have time to look at it. And I was very much helped in, in an explanation that I found in a book by, entitled The Good of Affluence by John Snyder. But, but that's not my point. What is clear from this story is that while wealth sometimes originates and comes to people in and through some very morally complex and even shady systems, it's unrighteousness does not invalidate the fact that it can be creatively used to bring about good in the lives of Christians and other people around him. Like Zacchaeus, it proves that even in a, in a, in a quite wicked economic setting, wealth can be converted into an ally for God's kingdom. Gang, I'm not trying to encourage anyone to go out and make money shadily. Look, look, but look at verse 9. This is probably, this is part of the problem with this story. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, and it will, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Gang, Making friends by the means of unrighteous wealth is a, it's a, it's a preview to, to, to being received into eternal dwellings. Let me restate it kind of so that I hope that it'll make some sense. Our faithfulness in the realm of Money, with all of its challenges, if and when we have it, is a measure of our faithfulness to God. What I'm saying, guys, is that like Zacchaeus, this story has to do with converting the, the dark and oppressive powers of the, of the economic system, unrighteous wealth, 
into a power for good and redemption. Those two stories imply a kind of aggressive Christianity within the economic world. Um, if, if one has enough resources available to them, which so many of us do, uh, and if one knows the score, as these two guys apparently did, then the potential for doing good is enormous. If I could put it in, 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 in a rather philosophical and maybe even a contemporary way, guys, the model of Christianity that emerges from these two stories is that wealth is to be viewed as world affirmative and world transformative and not in the least a mandate of withdrawal and separation. And I, I got one more, but I think there's no text in the New Testament that that says this more powerfully than the parable that follows Zacchaeus. The parable of the ten minus. Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. I wish we had time to read this whole story. We do not. But let me, t- let me show you a little, about, a little of it. He said, um, um, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, look, he said to them, Engage in business until I come. Now, gang, what this parable is giving us is a model for how Christians are to understand life in this world until Jesus Christ returns. It is a picture of what faithfulness looks like with a specific reference to the economic life. Look at verse 13, where we're told, uh, engage in business. He says it again. Oh, verse 16. The first gained by doing business. This parable honors the courage of godly people in the marketplace. And it damns cowardice. When's the last time you heard a sermon on the, the, the dangers of being a coward in the business world. Folks, this parable points us to an obligation to enter the world by means of trade, investment, and business. And by our so doing, we enlarge the master's influence and power over that dominion While he is away, Jesus entrusts this man with ten minas. He goes out and he engages in business. He doubles his investment by doing business. And when Jesus comes back, Jesus says, you did good. Gang, Jesus is not applauding economic gain. But he is applauding faithfulness to him 
in the middle of an economic world. The extension of his influence throughout the world by courageously and righteously gaining by doing business right there in the text. Guys, back to my question. Can we be both wealthy and righteous at the same time? And if so, what would that look like? Well, first of all, let me answer the first half of the question. Can we be righteous and faithful to God at the same time? Not only can we, but we must be. Not, not we must be wealthy, but if we are, we must use the dark powers that seem to be associated with, with wealth to use it and convert it into an influence where the kingdom of Jesus Christ is expanded. Can we? We must. And we are charged with that responsibility while the nobleman is away. And he is calling us to courageously engage and righteously engage and gaining by doing business. Now, but the other half of the question, what would it look like? On the 27th of January, I mentioned a couple of things. Let me say those again. First of all, it would look like this. There would be an economic humility about us. That is, that what I have, I am perfectly aware that God gave it to me. And it is to be transformed into a community blessing. I am to use what God has given me to bless this community. Secondly, there must be among us a serious concern for the poor, the helpless, and an insistence upon social justice and care for the marginalized, the people who have been pressed to the margins of this economic godless system of ours. We have to be using those economic gains to benefit those who have been smushed by unrighteous wealth. And then let me add these two things and I'm done. Thirdly, there must be about us a determination that when Jesus returns, my doing business will be a great delight him. That's what this parable says, ladies and gentlemen. The man with ten minus checked in and Jesus saw his books and said, my son, you did well. Not because he made a lot of money, because, but because he extended the nobleman's influence by the use of economic clout. There has to be among us a certain courage 
to engage in business in the name of Jesus Christ and to use whatever clout we have to advance his influence. And then fourthly, we've got to find creative ways of using wealth to advantage our community. Listen. Beyond perceived minimums. Ladies and gentlemen, you have never in 17 years here, you have never heard me, never once have you heard me, ever mention tithing. And the reason that I haven't is because most of our people can give away 10% of their income and never miss it. I am not talking about tithing. I am talking about us getting before God and finding creative ways to help our community far beyond any perceived minimums that you might have thought. Ladies and gentlemen, I will tell you this. I don't know how these statistics, people come up with these statistics, but some, there is some, I think it's George Barna who says that there's only 7% of the people of God who even tithe. 7%? Oh my. <laughs> I, I'm not even asking you to do that. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Go to God. Ask him what he would have you do. In light of the dangers of unrighteous wealth, ask him what he would have you do. Get creative. Zacchaeus did. I know what Exodus 22 says, but I'm I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go for it. Find out what he says. Would you dare just ask God, what would you have me do? In the book that I read that was so helpful um, in these two sermons, it opened with a quote. It opened with a quote from a guy by the name of Michael Novak. (laughs) And it's not our Michael Novak, the one that comes from Grace Advantage in seminary at Covenant Seminary. It's not that Michael Novak. But Michael Novak, whoever he is, said this. We are going to see a revival in this country. And it's going to be led by rich people. (laughs) You know, I don't know if either one of those is true. I don't know whether we're going to see a revival. And I don't know whether it's going to be led by rich people. But I can tell you this much. I long to see a revival. I long to see God visit us in a way that he hasn't visited this land in 150 years. And if we're going to be a part of it, it's going to, be, it's going to mean that it's going to be led by rich people. Because that's who we are. But whether we're rich or poor, I pray 
that God will visit us once again. And that he will find us using unrighteous wealth to extend his influence to the ends of the earth. That's what it will look like. Our Father, I do pray that you will challenge your people, that you will use what has been said here to stir us, that the doors would would swing wide open so that we can at least talk, so that we can at least try to figure out what kinds of things would please our Heavenly Father. We pray it, of course, in Jesus' name.